were just doing some small talk here, right? Anybody ask anyone else, what are you doing this summer? Any plans for this summer? Anyone ask that question? That's kind of the, the question we ask this time of year, right? And I want to start off by uh, asking ourselves a slightly different question. Turning that question on ourselves. Uh, and I want us to ask ourselves, not like, what am I doing this summer? But what is my summer for? What do I want this season this summer to do, like to do in my soul. You know, maybe you uh, just, you know, graduated. Maybe you just finished school. Maybe you're home for the summer. You know, maybe your families or you got, you got kids in school and you've all been busy going a million miles an hour and it's uh, just kind of a deep breath and you're entering into the summer, into a new season. Uh, about years ago, it was 2016, um, my wife and I were celebrating all sorts of milestones and so we went to Maui, and we were on the road to Hana, and we turned on the bus to the people behind us, and uh, they were an older couple, and so I asked, what do you do? And he said, we're refired. And I was like, Re what? Retired? And he said, no, we're refired for Christ. <laughs> uh, you didn't know I was a pastor, a Christian anyway, and I was like, that's the nerdiest thing I've ever heard, but like, that's so cool. Like, you named your season, you know? You named your season. Right? You knew the assignment. And so summer, the season of summer that comes every year, have you named your summer? You know, have you given it a purpose, intentionality? What do you want this summer to do? What is your summer for? And I want to make a suggestion that summer is a time for getting in touch with something real. Summer is a time for getting back in touch with something real. If, if New Year's are for resolutions, Summers are for reality checks, you know? How's it going? It's reality check time. Maybe it's getting back in touch with something real, like God's word, God's creation, our most important relationships. Maybe even with ourselves, our bodies, right? Getting back in touch. Um, so what's your summer for? When I was a kid, we had two weeks of summer every winter. Two weeks of summer every winter. My parents, my dad, some of you know him, he's like a surfer dude, uh, they, they, them and some friends, they bought this property down at the very tip of Baja, a little place you've never heard of, El Sargento, property was dirt cheap, and they built this like big old livable garage on the property, so I have a picture of it right here to store basically all their toys, um, and so this is the desert and the ocean right there, and so we would go down there every Christmas break. Uh, one year we took, or a few years, we took my uh, grandfather's 1969 King of the Road motorhome and the axle just broke in half. And I, uh, in the middle of nowhere, I lived for a week in a Mexican junkyard, missed a week of school. It's another sermon. Uh, but yeah, so that was Christmas. Uh, my dad decorated a cactus. He liked to do that. Um, and there was just like nothing to do. Like this was pre-early cell phone days, There's no internet, no connection, we were just cut off down there. So I'm just walking around, shooting stuff with my slingshot. Um, and at night, you know, there's nothing to do and there's no air pollution, no light pollution in the Baja sky. So I would just lay on that roof for hours sometimes just looking at the stars. And uh, now, you know, I take the trash out at night. Every time I'm like, I glance up, you know, and remember there's stars up there. Uh, you know, so I always find Orion's belt is the first thing, like, I was taught to as a kid. I, like, worry about my kids. I'm like, do they know they're stars? You know, like, they go to bed so early. Like, I just, you know, and I just, 
I feel like there's a part of me, this unchangeable part of me, that somehow was formed uh, as a result of just those hours on that roof in Baja, staring up at the stars. And today we are in Psalm 19. Psalm 19, and it begins with the stars. It begins in the skies. Psalm 19, it begins with a six-verse meditation on the sky. Then it changes abruptly to a five-verse meditation on the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the law. And then a three-verse conclusion, which is personal prayer. So in light of his meditation on the sky and on the law, there's three verses of prayer. C.S. Lewis said of Psalm 19, he said, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalms, and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Wow, high praise, right? And it was his favorite psalm, and so I hope by the time we're done, it's one of your favorites as well. Psalm 19, like many other psalms, is attributed to King David, okay? Um, And so I want us to just imagine the scene. Imagine that David, like me, is stargazing, okay? He's on the roof of his palace. David liked going up on the roof, okay, but let's imagine this time he's keeping his eyes safely heavenward, okay? He's not looking at any other roofs, you know, and bathing on other roofs, okay? He's just up there stargazing. Um, And Deuteronomy 17, your favorite chapter of the Bible, okay? Deuteronomy 17 has this really interesting place where it says that uh, the king, when he took his throne, his inauguration, He was required by law to write his own handwritten copy of the whole law, the whole Torah, all 187 chapters. He had to write his own copy of the law and meditate on it every single day, required by law. Isn't that something? You know, it's like we all want a godly president. Like we settle for a lot less than that, don't we? You know? Every day, his own handwritten copy of the law. So I want us to just imagine, you know, David is faithful to this practice, and he's up there on his roof while the stars are still out early in the morning. He's meditating on the law, and then he watches the sunrise. And this experience inspires this poem. So let's read the first four verses. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, the sky pours out speech. Night to night, reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Uh, I read the Jesus Storybook Bible to my kids every night. I love the paraphrase of this right in the beginning of that, so I'll read it. The heavens are singing about how great God is, and the skies are shouting it out. See what God has made. Day after day, night after night, they are speaking to us. So if you're the king in ancient Israel, there is no cable TV, not even for the king, right? There's no streaming services. There's no 24-hour news cycle. There's no doom-scrolling Instagram or TikTok or Twitter, okay? There's no fidgety screen addictions at all. There is one show on, and it's on all the time. It's the sky. 
and there's drama in the sky, right? The sky is broadcast on every channel to every individual in the world, and it's free, right? You can look up at any time and think about how much is going on in the sky, right? You've got stars, of course, you have planets, you have constellations, you have comets, you have shooting stars and meteors, you know, you have clouds and rain and the moon and hail and sleet and snow and thunder and lightning and birds, rainbows, the sun, right? Like, you can get a PhD in any one of those things I just said. You can get a PhD in, like, the feeding habits of bald eagles in Reading. You know, like, just insanely specific things. There's so much knowledge. And that's just stuff we can see with our naked eye. We're not talking about black holes and theoretical stuff. Like, it's endless. It's endless. And tuition is free. Class is always in session. But even with this infinite variability in the sky, there's, a, there's an order, right? There's a beauty. There's a regularity. You can depend on the constellations. You can depend on the phases of the moon. And above all, you can depend on the rising and the setting of the sun. And from Earth's perspective, right, the, Earth, the sun is the king of the skies. It's the greatest of all the stars. And so now David turns his meditation to specifically the sun. And he says, in them, that's in the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun. What's the tent? A, the big blue sky, right? It's like a big Costco tent, you know, <laughs> right? A tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, a newlywed. The sun is like a newlywed leaving his bridal chamber in the morning. He says, and like a strong man, an athlete, an Olympian, right, runs its course with joy. The sun rises from one end of the heaven, runs its circuit all the way to the other end, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. I just love this so much. Like, isn't this fun? <laughs> David imagines the sun as a newlywed, like leaving his honeymoon suite in Maui beaming, you know? Like, he's got a little extra pep in his step this morning, you know? Like, waking up early is not difficult this morning. He's like, I think I'll go for a run today. That's how he's imagining the sun. It's like an Olympic athlete, a strong man running his course with joy. Who runs with joy? Running is terrible, isn't it? It's just awful, right? Apparently, if you're really fit and strong, then you might even have fun while running. And since Copernicus, right, we of course know that we're going around the sun, you know, and the earth's spinning. But if you just, you know, you're on the roof contemplating, looking at the sun, think about how fast it's going. You're like, well, it's not going that fast. Try and race it, <laughs> you know? Try and race it. I mean, if you went on a journey in the ancient world, it was arduous. It took forever if you went at all. It wasn't like getting, hopping on a plane, you know? But the sun, it's going from one end of the earth, you don't even know where that is, to the other end of the earth every single day, thousand miles an hour, never slowing down, like newlywed in his prime, radiant, brilliant, strong. And finally, he says, nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun. Nothing is hidden from the heat. Lewis says this is not like England's heat. <laughs> this is not like the mild heats of our Bay Area climate. Okay, Lewis says this is like the cloudless, blinding, tyrannous rays hammering the hills, searching every nook and cranny. David's meditating on the sun. He's thinking all of life is dependent on the sun. Yeah, but it's dangerous, isn't it? I mean, the sun can 
kill you from 93 million miles away. It's the ultimate sniper. You know, it can give you a heat stroke or cancer. It's powerful. I mean, whither can we flee from the sun? You know, shade is temporary, but the sun would have seemed eternal to David. And so this reflection, very naturally, it turns David's mind from the sun to the eternal word of God, which, like the sun, gives light, like the sun, gives life, and searches to the very heart of humans. So let's pick up in verse 7, where he transitions to now the law of the Lord. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts, by the way, these are a lot of synonyms for the word or for the law of God. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So there's a significant language shift here from verse 1 where he says God, or El in, in Hebrew. It's just a universal term for God. To then he goes to the very specific Hebrew word, the name, the Lord, Yahweh. And he repeats the name seven times throughout the rest of the psalm. Because, right, God named each star, but the stars, no matter how long you contemplate them, they can't tell you God's name, can they? Right? I mean, people have looked at the order, the beauty, the reliability of the night sky and come to believe that there's got to be some mind. There has to be a God, right? But you can't know God that way. He has to reveal himself to us. Sun's great. I mean, it can cheer you up, you know? That's why I won't ever move to Seattle, right? God willing, right? The sun can cheer you up. It can give you a tan, you know? But it can't give you integrity. It can't give you wholeness of heart. You can't do that. It's not that powerful, Right? The stars can shape a young soul as we look at them and feel our smallness, but they can't save your soul. Right? God breathed out the sun and the stars, but he's not billions of light years away. He's closer to you, as Augustine said, than you are to you. He knows you better than you know yourself. So David meditates on the law, and he says in verse 7 that the law, meditating on the law, reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, soaking in it, chewing on it. He says it revives the soul. This is an expression used for things as simple as a meal in the Bible. Revives the soul. All right, so meditating on Genesis revives the soul like a burger and fries, okay? Like bacon and root beer, right? Like shawarma and hummus. Meditating on Exodus. We would say it gives me life, you know? Meditating on Exodus, oh, it gives me life meditating on Leviticus gives me life. You're like, really? I've read Leviticus. David would say, keep reading. There is treasure. There's treasure there. According to David, he says, the law makes wise the simple. So you can be a simple person, and the law can make you wise. It's not going to teach you how to change your tire, you know, or find that password you forgot, but it's going to teach you the most important things in life. It can make you wise. The law, verse 8, rejoices the heart. What else rejoices the heart in the Bible? Wine rejoices the heart in the Bible. Uh, you know, and all God's people who drove here from Livermore said, amen, you know? Like, so here's the point. Like, the things that we go to restaurants for to revive the soul, you know, the things we go to mentors for or college for to become wise, why would we go to wineries on the weekend, you know, or over the summer, right, to, to rejoice the heart, 
The things we go to for refreshment, joy, wisdom. David's saying, you know, this mandatory practice I have of meditating on God's word, I found it even better for that. I found it even more reliable, more perfect, more sure in the long run for refreshment, wisdom, and joy. He's not done. He says the law enlightens the eyes. Enlightens the eyes. Make your eyes sparkle, you know? Um, So, it's like the, inter- the, the joy of getting God's word down, 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 down in your heart. You know, like it shows in the eyes. It comes out through the eyes. You know, so you don't want to be a burnt out, dead-eyed, joyless simpleton like everyone else these days. Try what no one else is trying. Don't meditate on Instagram. Don't meditate on Fox News or CNN, right? Learn to delight in the book of Numbers. Like, no one's trying that, you know? There's joy there. The joy of wisdom will come out through your eyes and make them twinkle like Gandalf or Dumbledore, right? The wise have twinkly eyes. So the law of the Lord is revives the soul. It's like good food. It makes one wise and enlightens the eyes. That sound familiar? Do you remember in Genesis, we'll have the verse up here, Genesis 3, 6, when the serpent tells Eve to go check out that tree that God said no to, <laughs> the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what does she see? She sees, one, that it's good for food, that it's a delight to the eyes, and it's desirable to make one wise. Isn't that interesting? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is like the law of God in some sense. You can meditate on that, okay? Um, Verse 9, I think this gives us a little insight into this. He says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Um, Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? And to fear the Lord is to turn from evil. Well, in the Adam and Eve story, right, when we choose to define good and evil for ourselves, right, it's not what God's word says, but what feels good, what looks good, what's expedient in the moment. When we do that, it may feel good in the moment, but how do we end up feeling? David says the fear of the Lord is clean. We end up feeling dirty. We end up feeling ashamed. We end up in hiding like Adam and Eve. He says, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. Adam and Eve, instead of enduring forever, they begin to die. Maybe even we can imagine like the light went out from their eyes. Their eyes stopped twinkling. What did they find? They found that God's no was righteous altogether. Sometimes it doesn't seem like that in the moment right? God's no was righteous altogether. God was not deceitful like the snake. God was not holding out on them. You know, it's just life. Sometimes it's only by getting out of step with God's law. It's only by disobedience. It's only by becoming a a transgressor, a sinner like David, like Adam, like Eve, that we, you know, we begin to like not just know it up here, but like feel it, taste it, right? That God's way God's instructions are perfect, are sure, are right, are reliable. Our prayers start to sound like Psalm 25. God, please show me your way. Show me your truth, because I've been out of step. I know where that goes. I want to be in your will, Lord. Please help. So David, and now he's just gushing. He's just gushing, okay? Verses 10 and 11, he says, More to be desired are your laws than money, <laughs> than gold, even much fine gold. He says, sweeter also than honey, even like honey dripping directly from the honeycomb, okay, like farm-to-table honey, 
Okay, like Annie Mortz in our church, the honey that she makes. Like it's bees, honey, right? Like, like even that honey is sweeter than that God's law. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. All right, can we just have a moment of honesty? Do you have any idea what David's talking about right now? How do you delight in rules? What? Like, I was playing cards with some friends the other night, and I, like, couldn't even bear them describing the instructions to me. I was like, can we just play the game? I'll figure it out. I can't bear this. Anybody with me? Like, they just, their brain goes off as soon as there's instructions. Like, how can a diet be better than cake? What are we talking about? How does one delight in rules? What? We really need to get the sense of this. So I want you to think of, of a time in your life, if you can. I hope there's something. Think of a moment in your life where you felt like you were really living, where you were experiencing life to the fullest. Like that abundant life thing Jesus talks about, like you're like, yes, this is it. Please don't go away. <laughs> I don't want to go back to normal. Think of a time where you felt truly human in the last series we were talking about, or in the words of David Benner, fully alive and deeply human. Where does your mind go? My mind, interestingly, goes back to Mexico again, this time further north in Ensenada. Uh, when I was a high schooler here at VCC, we did an Ensenada mission trip every year, and I went all four years of high school. Um, and so we would do the short-term mission trip thing, you know, vacation Bible school, building houses. But here we are, you know, Pleasanton kids, huge group of Pleasanton kids, and, and we would spend 11 days, no screens, right, no phones, we're on the road, we're singing songs, we're working with our hands, like working really hard with our hands. And we're building relationships like intergenerationally, we're building relationships cross-culturally, and then every night we're sharing meals together and we're around the fire and we're telling stories, we're practicing sharing our testimonies under the stars. Have you ever experienced something like that? You know what I'm talking about? I hope you have. And listen, I've read all the books, I've listened to all the podcasts on all the stuff there is to be cynical about with short-term mission trips and youth ministry culture in the 90s and 2000s, okay? Like, I've read the books, but let's not get so cynical we lose sight of what was real, what was powerful. Because there was something very powerful going on. Um, actually, Brant Hansen tells a super similar story in this book. And I was like, I've taught this, it was crazy. But he, think about this. The majority of us Pleasanton kids on that trip we struggled with anxiety and depression. We struggled with eating disorders. We were the pioneers of internet pornography before anyone even knew that was a problem. We struggled with all of that. But for those 11 days, something weird happened. We were so deeply connected with the work that we were doing and with one another that those burdens we lived with became strangely light, even disappeared for long stretches. Why? The reason is we were living as God designed us to live. Do you know addiction is really just coping with the pain of living how we know we're not designed to live? Distracted, disconnected, with no sense of like meaning or purpose behind the things that we're doing. That's all it is. But we were in touch with something real that summer. We were fully alive. We were deeply human. We were, get this, we were fulfilling the law. We were fulfilling the law. That's why those 11 days, they revived my soul. 
They revived my soul. They, I grew in wisdom. Those 11 days every year, they rejoiced my heart. I would literally come back with a light in my eyes. I mean literally. Like my parents would be like, your face looks different. What's going on? Right? My hands were dirty and calloused, but my heart felt soft and clean and different. It was rewarding at a, at a different level than sports or extracurriculars or anything, right? Because we stumbled upon something real. For a moment, it wasn't about what I call fulfilling the law of Pleasanton, okay? Righteousness according to Pleasanton, where you get the right grades for the right college, for the right job, for the right income, and there you go, kingdom of heaven. That's it, right? No, we, we found something more precious than money, even Pleasanton money, right? More precious. Some of you are going to believe me, maybe, and you're going to go read Leviticus. And you're going to be like, what? <laughs> you know, why are there all these weird laws in here about, like, how to treat my grandparents and, like, you know, my oxen, you know, and I have to leave, like, some gleanings for the poor and the refugee in my field? Like, what is all this about? Like, yes, it's an ancient context. But what it's testifying to is that there's actually a way that we are to interact with our neighbors that's properly called love. Loving God and loving neighbor. See, arrogance just assumes we know what love is. I don't got to read about it. I don't need a Lord, a teacher, a Savior teaching me about it. We've all seen the signs. Love is love. End of conversation, right? I don't got to think about it anymore. I just know what love is. But Christianity, it begins when we're humble enough to say, maybe Jesus knows better. Maybe Jesus knows better than secular culture over here, and maybe Jesus knows better than traditionalism. Maybe Jesus knows better than churchy culture. Maybe we have some stuff to learn too, right? And if I'm not really paying close attention to this light, to this lamp, to the word of Jesus, then my feet are going to miss the way. So when we become learners, apprentices, disciples, right, that's the fear of the Lord. That's humility. That's the beginning of wisdom. But we get so mixed up about God's law, right? I mean, even a, a shallow reading of the Bible can confuse us. You know, we read we're saved by grace, not by works of the law. That's right. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. He came to fulfill the law. God's law is actually holding up that realness. It's holding up that freedom of living the way we were designed to live. Paul says it's holy, it's righteous, it's good. Dallas Willard, God rest his soul, he helpfully said, the law is not the source of righteousness, but it is the course of righteousness. Not the source, but it's the course. It's not the power, right? The spirit of God is the power. The grace of God is the power, but it is the path. It's the path of maximal joy that, yeah, we all fall short of. We all fall short of that glory. But when, man, as a teenager, <laughs> I stumbled on to the grace of God, right, as a teenager in, in Ensenada, as I pray our students will at camp or at Appalachia later this summer, or our team going in Ensenada, when we stumble upon that, when we experience that, man, we would trade anything for it, trade anything for it. Life, how it's really meant to be lived, by definition, it can't be bought. So it's more precious than gold. David finishes his meditation. So in light of this meditation on the law, he says, oh, who can discern his errors? 
Who can see all the ways I've fallen short? Who can know everything lurking down there? He says, who can discern his errors? He just says, declare me innocent, Lord, from hidden faults. Declare me innocent. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Don't let them have dominion over me. So the law made a distinction from like sins where you knew exactly what you're doing, presumptuous sins, okay? Cain killing Abel, who knew exactly what he was doing, right? And sins you, you didn't even know you committed. You know what I mean? Like the stuff that's so baked into your personality, like maybe your spouse and your friends know those sins, <laughs> but you don't even know it, right? The law talked about both of those. David says, declare me innocent. Then he says, I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my heart, this is wonderful, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. When we understand righteousness according to God's law properly, as being truly human, as living the way we were designed to live, we know we fall short, right? We know we fall short of that. We know we're not like one more scroll away to that life hack and there it's going to be, you know? We're not one more self-help book away. Like, let's be honest, we're not one more practice of apprenticeship away. We fall short. We're not even close. David's prayer is that of someone who, who deeply understands this. Right, if you read the Gospels, who is it that gets this? It's the tax collectors. It's the blind beggars. It's the lepers, right, who consistently over and over again, their prayer is simply this, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right, they're not coming with complicated tests and questions for Jesus. They're, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's their prayer life. They say, I, you know, I can't face you as judge, David says. I can't face you as judge. I need you to be like the most patient teacher in the universe. I need you to be like the most supportive parent, the most on-my-team coach that I have ever had. I'm going to need a fresh start, like, not every month, not every day, not every, you know, like, every moment. I need a fresh start. Like, declare me innocent, declare me blameless, declare me acceptable. That's my only hope. And VCC, is, this is exactly the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen? It's exactly the hope. In Jesus Christ, there is grace upon grace upon grace. This pressure to get life just right, to flourish. We love that word right now, you know? The pressure to flourish. It's coming from everybody. It's coming from even within ourselves, but it's not coming from Jesus Christ. The pressure to get life just right is coming from everywhere but Jesus Christ. Like, let's be honest. The words of our mouth they're offensive, you know? They're a mess. Our hearts are a mess. But Jesus Christ, get this, this is so good. Jesus Christ is the word of God's mouth. Jesus Christ is the meditation of God's heart. Jesus Christ is the blameless and innocent one that David prays to be and fails to be. Jesus Christ died for our great transgressions, both the presumptuous ones and the hidden ones. That's why we say he is our rock. He is our redeemer. He is our safe place, our refuge. So we really can have that fresh start in him. Matthew 11, that passage that we love, come to me, all who labor, right? All who are tired, 
Are you tired of scrolling? Maybe you're even tired of church (laughs) this morning. Come to Jesus, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. He says, take my yoke, my teaching upon you. We forget, he was comparing his teaching, his yoke, to the preachers and teachers of his day. He said, they're laying bricks on your back. My yoke, my teaching is easy. My burden is light. If it's not that, it's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. When we say yes to Jesus, we find the freedom to say no to all the false pressures that crush us. And maybe that are even are robbing our summer from us. So let's return to our question for the beginning. What is your summer for? What is your summer for? Well, maybe you are that exhausted person. You are feeling disconnected. You are distracted. Maybe your family has been running a million miles an hour in different directions from one another. It's time for a reality check, isn't it? It's time for a reality check. Listen, you can't live in perpetual spring. You will die of allergies. (laughs) But of burnout, you can't live in perpetual spring. You will die of burnout. How are you going to make space for real rest, for real deep, slow connection or reconnection with God's word, with the relationships that matter most in your life, right? with God's creation, not just the devices and things we make, maybe even with yourself. How are you going to make space for that connection? I want to close with two examples. Two examples. Um, the best one comes right out of our text this morning. Great way to connect with God with something real is to meditate on his word. It's our first practice of apprenticeship. But I know from personal experience and from a lot of pastoring that a lot of us have a very complicated relationship with God's word. Honestly, with personal Bible study. A lot of us, every time we go to our Bibles, the first thing we're thinking is, I didn't do this yesterday. (laughs) I don't do this enough. Our Bibles, it's crazy, like become associated with guilt and shame. Right, we have these pressures. I know people that read through the Bible every single year. I don't do that. Something must be wrong with me. <laughs> Where's the joy in that? There is grace upon grace in Jesus Christ. In other words, there's space. There's space. What if we just took permission? Name your summer. Name it your Psalm 1 summer. Your Psalm 19 summer. Don't put any pressure on yourself. It's not from the Lord to read any more than that. A complicated reading plan you're going to feel bad about. Every time you go to the Bible, Psalm 1, and you're going to look up every word, you know? You're going to read it in every translation. You're going to memorize it, not because you tried really hard to memorize it, but just because you soaked in that thing. You marinated in that thing. You enjoyed that thing, and it's just going to come out of you in different ways. Give yourself the space to really do that. Not to check a box, but to really connect with with the God who inspired the text. Another example, uh, a trip. Right? A trip in the summer is a great way to connect with our family, to connect with creation, to connect with the Lord. But are you using, I'm going to turn this into a bad word. Are you using the word squeeze? We're just going to squeeze in a vacation. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We're going to squeeze it in right before school starts. Can we just get that word out of our vocabulary, squeeze? What if instead you cut? Right? You cut and you stretched. Like I swear, if you say, oh, I need a vacation after my vacation, you made a choice, okay? <laughs> like, you could have seen that coming, right? I need a vacation after my vacation. Plan it. 
plan it. You can do it unless you have little kids on your vacation. I can't help you there. Okay, that's just, that's your season. Vacations are tiring with little ones, okay? Name it, name it. Or some of my closest friends, they work for tech companies where they have unlimited PTO. You know what that is? Unlimited, so I sort of, whoop, unlimited paid time off. Listen, you better be taking more than your pastor, okay? I get three weeks. I was just talking to my buddy. He's like, oh, I took four days this year. What? You know, I looked this up on Reuters. Medieval peasants, eight weeks to six months a year because their feudal lords knew they would rebel if they didn't, right? You're like, oh, the dark ages must have been terrible. No, send some penicillin back there. That's the best time to live. (laughs) Americans take, on average, eight days. Eight days, on average, per year. Us who have everything. The richest culture in human history. We all live like kings now. King David couldn't have imagined our lifestyle. Right, so we, we could blame the system. Oh, I don't have enough time. I'm so busy to connect with my kids. No, no. Or you could take responsibility to make that space, to risk prioritizing the most important things, which are people and the Lord. So this getting in touch with something real, it's another way of saying repentance. <laughs> really, we're, we're designed to live in a rhythm of work and rest. And if we haven't been living in that rhythm, then we need to Repent. We need to get in touch with something real. And it's, it's, listen, it's not going to look the same for every person, right? But it will involve risk. Whatever your stage is, whatever your season is, it will feel risky. That's why David said there's great reward. There is great reward. Like, the insta- like these, these students going to camp, are there extracurriculars you could have done? You know, are, there miss- are you missing out on social stuff? Is it super expensive? Like, yeah, all that's true. But it's big enough to change their life. It's big enough to change their life, right? Big enough to change my life. Like, I had all the opportunity in the world. I became a pastor. Why would I do that, (laughs) you know? Because I touched something real on those trips, and I pray, and I trust you guys will as well. And um, I would be remiss not to say, I know a few of you have been laid off recently. I was talking to some friends about this, and like, doing a trip this summer feels really, really risky. Like, you got the time, but the finances of it feel super, super risky. And I just want to ask you to wrestle with a question. One day your family's going to tell the story of this time where their parent got laid off, right? One day your family's going to tell that story. How do you want them to tell the story? How can you show a risk of faith in this time? There's great risk, but in Jesus Christ, there's space. There's grace upon grace, space to risk, and prioritize what is real. So I really hope to hear some stories at the end of this summer. Dream with your friends. Dream with your families. What risks are you going to take? What risk did you take to reconnect with something real this summer? So I promise you, those sacrifices, those risks, with all that false pressure that feels so real, later on won't feel real at all.